Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello. Welcome to New Books and Music, a channel on the New Books Network. My name is Kristen Turner, and I'm talking to Will Robin today about his book, Industry, Bang on a Can and New Music in the Marketplace, published by Oxford University Press in 2021. Bang on a Can is an organization devoted to contemporary classical music founded in 1987 and run by three composers who met when they were students at Yale University, Julia Wolfe, David Lang, and Michael Gordon. The group reflects the aesthetic judgment, artistic philosophy, and curiosity of these three people and has grown to be one of the most recognizable institutions supporting new music and emerging composers in the United States. Robin's book traces Bang on the Can's beginnings, ending just as the new century dawned. He contextualizes Bang on a Can's development in a time when traditional funding sources for classical music were disappearing and major institutions were often unwilling to take a chance on contemporary music. As the title indicates, at heart, industry is about the classical music industry at a time when it faced enormous challenges and how Bang on a Can maneuvered through this minefield. Welcome, Will. It's great to talk to you today. Thank you so much for that lovely intro, and I'm, I'm very happy to be speaking with you. Um, so how I always want to start these um, interviews with just the basic question, how did you decide to write this book? You know, what interested you about Bang on the Can? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question uh, and a good starting point. You know, I have been following Bang on a Can since I was in college, I think, um, in terms of just like when I was an undergrad, I think I saw them play at um, at my school and I was like really blown away by that and kind of like the classical plus rock, this kind of like hip alternative thing that's like, you know, when you're an undergrad, classical performance major, it's like, whoa, like that's, that's really different. Um, and Going into grad school, I continued to be interested in them, but really more so in kind of the, a generation of composers that were really influenced by Bang on a Can, but were about 20 years, 30 years younger. Um, composers like Nico Muley or Judd Greenstein or Missy Mazzoli. And when it came time to work on my my dissertation, um, we were together at Chapel Hill, a lovely place. Um I was focusing more on that generation, but kind of thinking about Bang on a Can as a precursor and as an influence and um, for various logistical uh, reasons that I won't get into, I ended up, um, Bang on a Can was originally supposed to be part of my dissertation and then it ended up getting uh, lost lost in the, in the wayside, but I'd already done all this research on them. And so when it came time to work on the book, I decided... Uh, what if the book was kind of like a prequel to the dissertation? The dissertation ended up focusing on this kind of like post-2007, quote-unquote, indie classical scene. 
And and I said, what if I kind of look at the 80s and 90s and what what helped lead to that scene? But ultimately, like what I discovered in the course of that additional research, building out from Bang and Akin to understand the larger world of contemporary music in the US in this period was like, there's a lot more going on that I didn't know about at all. And that, you know, doesn't exist anymore or isn't as well known as it once was. And and so it just kind of led me deeper and deeper down down this rabbit hole of, of understanding the world of Bang on a Kid and the world of the 80s and 90s. Yes, full disclosure, Will and I went to grad school together. <laughs> I started, I don't know, a couple years before you, I guess, but we were in classes right. together, maybe one year before you. I can't yeah, remember. Yeah, you were in the Haydn seminar maybe with Bonds? Yes. Was, yeah. yeah, okay. Absolutely. Yeah. We'll never forget the Haydn seminar with <laughs> Well, so going far away from Haydn, let's think about Bang on the Can, or maybe it's not sure. that far, actually. I, I always think that the, the more the classical music industry changes, the more it seems to say the same in some yeah, ways. Sure, because sure, of sure. The kind of patronage it seems to require. Mm -hmm. But anyway, um, let's start with just setting the stage a little bit. Can you give us a sense of what was going on in the classical music industry in the mid 80s when these three founders were just beginning their careers meeting, you know, thinking about how to conduct their careers? What, what were they yeah. having to face? So that we have three composers who are kind of the main characters of the book, although I talk about a lot, of, a lot of other kind of institutions alongside Bang and a Can. Um, David Lang, Michael Gordon, and Julia Wolf, um, and they were all studying at Yale in the early to mid '80s, doing their grad degrees. And so they had, in various times in their previous kind of academic environment, encountered what in the 1970s and 80s was was pretty well known as kind of like the academic avant-garde, sometimes called the uptown musical world, which was associated with composers like. Milton Babbitt or Charles Warren and Mario Davidovsky, and like a very strong kind of sense of composition is about rigor and mathematics and scientific ideals. Um, this is linked to a larger kind of Cold War approach to composition um, that that the composer has a really strong kind of fortress in the academy. And they were all composers who were studied with some of those kind of students in that world, but they also disagreed with them kind of ideologically. And they tended to align themselves more with what was called the kind of downtown musical world. Um, if we think of uptown being associated with Columbia University, downtown was more associated with places like, um, downtown was more associated with um, small venues like experimental intermedia, the loft scene, and in particular, kind of the minimalists who were you know, composers who were writing music that was influenced by jazz and rock, that was tonal rather than atonal, and that had captured a really wide audience. And so in the early 80s, um, there was this sense of the minimalists like Steve Reich and Philip Glass had been selling like hundreds of thousands of records and selling out big concert venues of like contemporary music can have this mass appeal. Um, the composers who were in the academy disagreed with that notion. And these young composers, Gordon Lang and Wolf, all felt in various ways like I'm, I have this academic training, but I want, I'm want i more interested in the style of the minimalist, and I also want to kind of reach this broader audience. So when they came out of school, they were all kind of finding ways to build an organization that would reach a broader audience than contemporary music had in the past, um, would build on the success of the minimalists, um, but also kind of carve out their own, they had their own kind of aesthetic niche, their own way of doing things. Um, and the result of that was they decided to put on basically a marathon concert um, in downtown New York in an art gallery in 1987. They were all in their kind of like mid to late 20s at this point. 
And they wanted it to be kind of kooky and eclectic and fun and ideally attract people who weren't, you know, aficionados of contemporary music, but were maybe kind of like artsy people who might go to, a, a, you know, a Talking Heads show or, the, or MoMA or read The New Yorker, but we're not going to see, you know, Charles Warren at the Columbia University Recital Hall or something. Um, and they put on this big 12 hour concert. They programmed music by themselves, by their friends, by composers they admired. Um, and it was a success that they sold out the concert, about 400 people attended and they decided to do it again. And they basically started putting on these annual marathons, which led to festivals, which then kind of grew the organization more and more through this period. Uh, they started ensemble in the early 1990s. They start putting out records in that period. They signed with a major label, Sony classical in 1994 or five. And then right around then, they also start presenting their festival at Lincoln Center, which is a really big deal considering they had kind of started in this more kind of insular bohemian scene. And now they're, you know, working with these major classical music institutions. Um, so that's the short history. <laughs> that's good. I like that. Um, I, one of the questions I had immediately was... Mm-hmm. Why do you think that a 12-hour, 24-hour concert, these, which is really what Bang on the Can is, yeah. started with and is famous for, why did anyone decide they wanted to go? I mean, why is that a successful model? I don't want to go and listen to music for 24 hours. And yeah. I like music. Sure. You know? I mean, I do, but I'm a, obviously a weirdo. And also I have a kid now, so that doesn't really happen. Um, but they have put on 24 hour, a couple, I think there was one or two 24 hour marathons. Um, the early marathons were like 10 to 12 hours. Um, and the more recent ones are probably sometimes just like six to 10 hours. Um, the idea was to do something that was different from the usual concert experience of, of, of the kind of trappings of classical music, but also to offer a kind of alternative experience. So, you know, yes, there were probably, there were diehard people who went to the whole marathon. Um, But then the also, the idea was they had this kind of motto in the late 80s, early 90s of like, come and go as you like or stay all day. So like, you can drop in for a 20 minute performance and go get lunch, or you can, um, you know, stay for an hour and then go chat about the music um, in the hallway with the other composers. And they really liked this idea. I mean, it's a very kind of collegiate uh, concept. and in fact, the, the marathon format was inspired by a group that Lang and Gordon had encountered when they were at Yale, this undergraduate composer collective called Sheep's Clothing, which put on these marathon concerts that were overnight and they were in like the Yale dorms and uh, students would like bring sleeping bags and like coloring books. And it was like a, a real like college, you know, kind of like Ivy League, slightly cloistered, but like, you know, kind of like bohemian vibe. Um and so they wanted to do that when they originally planned this marathon concert, they were hoping it would go from, I think, 8 p.m. to 8 a.m. But the art gallery said, we're not doing that. So it went from like 2 p.m. to 2 a.m. Um, but if you, you know, bring together all of these different kinds of music as well, which was important to them of like, if we kind of spill outside the boundaries of a two hour concert, we can incorporate lots of we can we can put clashing musical styles back to back. We can bring in our friends. We can bring in um composers that they admired who were widely performed like Philip Glass or Steve Reich or Milton Babbitt, but they could also bring in people who were not as well known at the U S at this point, like Louis Andreessen, they became a big champion of, of his music in the late eighties and early nineties. Um, and you know, it, the, the format remains largely successful in the sense of like, you know, the bang on a can marathons I've gone to is you have people who kind of like stroll by and check it out for a bit. You can go to a set, you go to your friend's set and you have people 
like me or some other weirdos who like want to hear it all 12 hours because, you know, every 20 minutes there's something new. Um, and that's part of it too, right? It's not just like a 12 hour concert of one group playing a 12 hour piece. It's every time, you know, every 20 minutes there's something else. So do you think they, when they did that first concert that they had ambitions to keep it going and, you know, to blow it up the way that it has. I mean, now there's the all-stars group and there's a, um, you know, all sorts of other things. I think there's a record label, all the, all the stuff that's grown out of it. Did they have that ambition right from the start? That's a great question. And it gets to uh, one of the, one of the reasons why I ended up finding, I guess, like my research process, valuable and that I one of the things that I hope my book offers that's maybe different from some of the standard history that Bang on a Can tells about itself. Because they have a lot of, you know, any organization that's been around for a while has its own kind of like mythology, the stories that they tell. And one of the stories that the Bang on a Can founders tell, um, for example, Julia Wolf, um, her doctoral dissertation is a history of Bang on a Can. Um, and it's it's an interesting history. It's an insider one, obviously, but um, there's a lot of good, fascinating stories in there. And one of the stories that she tells there, but that the founders also tell in other settings is um, basically at the end of the night, 2 a.m. or 3 a.m. or whatever, at, in 1987 on Mother's Day, they're cleaning up and they're you know putting away folding chairs and and they're like, should we do this again? And they're like, yeah, we, how could we not do it again? Right. Like, this is so exciting. And they also talk about that they called the first Bang on a Can Marathon the first annual Bang on a Can Marathon. Like, that's what some of the promotional material said. But that they thought of that as a joke because, like, we'll never do this again. Like, but it's funny to call it the first annual. But then they did do it again, and they did come doing it, and doing it, and doing it. And so this is, you know, when they tell the story, it's a way of saying like we did something we thought no one would like, but everyone came and liked, and we decided to do it again. And like we're we're, um, you know, they they like to think of themselves as, um, you know, I mean, which they are very kind of creative, open, um, like more bohemian, um figures who you know everything kind of it's like lightning strikes and they decide to do something and it works um what i discovered in the course of of many years of archival research um and this happened really at the very end of the research process um one of the archival collections that i was able to find a lot of great stuff in was new york state archives in albany which um pre-covid uh the archivist there would uh if you um paid a fee, they would scan materials for, for you, which was fantastic. Um, and the New York State Archives has the archives of the New York State Council on the Arts, which is basically the state equivalent of the National Endowment for the Arts. So they awarded, oh, continue to award grants to artists to put on projects in New York State. And I was able to obtain from that archive, the basically the complete grant applications that Bang & Kent submitted to the New York State Arc, um, Council on the Arts from the late eighties to the early two thousands. Um, and there was all kinds of material in there that I hadn't seen in other archival collections because it was basically their complete applications, you know, basically them saying like, please give us $3,000 to put on this festival. Here's what our budget was last year. Here are, uh, you know, reports of how the festival went. Here's press clippings. Here's a description of what we do. And anyway, there's a long story that's a little boring, but hopefully gets more interesting. And in the, the first Bang Can Festival that they supposedly thought they would never do again, or that they said took place, that's what they said, took place in May 1987. And I found a grant application for the second Bang Can Festival in this dossier of materials that was submitted in March 1987. So... 
basically, it's not that they're lying for 30 years, but they've obviously told the story about themselves. That's actually, when you look at the archival documents, they were definitely thinking of putting on a second bang and a can festival before the first one happened because they had to get the grant application in on time. So, you know, the kind of conclusion that I drew from that and more broadly from the book is like, yes, they are, they're very much like think of themselves as like, you know, these happenstance, like we want to make things happen and we'll make things happen, but they were very ambitious. And I think they had a lot of administrative savvy and they knew what they wanted to do. And they, they sought out a lot of different funding sources from it. And they were very strategic. They've always been very strategic. And, you know, I think artists don't like to be thought of as strategic. They like to be thought of as, uh, you know, like that, that, that part of the, the business side of things is not foregrounded in their work because they want to emphasize the artistry and the creativity. Um, but I think it's worth, you know, saying that like, look, this is something that one of the reasons why they're successful is not just because they put on great concerts, but because they had this kind of ambition and savvy and um, administrative uh, approach. So one of the things that actually, that I also thought while I was going through, I was reading all the grant applications that you had gone through and thought, wow, that must have been exciting research. (laughs) I commend you reading grant applications. They're bad enough to write, but um, was just how much time it must have taken them to put this, to really start the organization when it was young, when they were putting on concerts, when they were trying to grow it, but they didn't have any administrative help and they were, you know, basically building it from the ground up. And that had to have taken time away from their, their compositions, you know, careers and, and other things they might want to do. Do you think that, or did you find any evidence that at any time they sort of resented or regret the time that they, that, you know, there are things they didn't do at certain points in their career, maybe always that Mm -hmm. they just could not have had time to do that because they were spending so much time on bang on the can. Yeah. You know, the organization started in around 1993 to, I think, which was when they began hiring, they were able to get grants to hire full-time staff in around 93 or 94. And that helped a lot for them. And also the partnership with Lincoln Center took a lot of, gave them a lot of administrative relief because they weren't, you know, sending out all the mailings for everything. And so they, you know, they talk about that, that, that period in the early nineties, things started to get really tough in terms of the organization was growing very quickly and they were having trouble keeping up with that. Um, You know, I, I, I don't necessarily know if the fact that they were spending all this time on bang on a can, affected their their careers early on um, in the sense of the time management. But one thing that did come up a lot is that they would talk about then and now that like they are in the early days of Bang and Akin. I mean, the, the clearest example is David Lang, who in the mid and late 1980s, David Lang was having a pretty significant kind of successful career as a kind of academic composer. He was winning a lot of prizes. He um uh, worked with for, with the New York Philharmonic. His teacher Jacob Druckmann was like putting him in touch with all these people, and he was he could have kind of had a big career in not quite the uptown world, but kind of adjacent to that, perhaps even in the in the classic world. He's having pieces played at Lincoln Center, and Bang on a Can, um, both because of the I think the commitment that they made to it, and also in its early years what it represented as this kind of like weird renegade organization that for the academics and for some of the people in the mainstream concert world seemed really like, whoa, uh, that did like affect, like he, he really made, there was a kind of juncture for him and he chose to go in this more kind of like um, indie direction that um, for a number of years, probably 
maybe, you know, for about a decade kept him from perhaps having this kind of really more starry early career. But this ends up kind of circling back because in the early 2000s, um, I mean, really when David Lang wins the Pulitzer Prize in 2008, he goes from, they had all had somewhat successful careers through the 90s and into the early 2000s. But that Pulitzer, I think, signals like he becomes this kind of mainstream classical figure again. And that the the kind of decade after that in which uh, Julia Wolf also wins a Pulitzer Prize and they get other major prizes. Um, they become these more kind of like um, establishment figures and Bang on a Can itself um, in this period becomes, I think, more of an establishment organization in a way too. Um, so, you know, one of the tricky things about the book was charting, okay, I have to kind of figure out what these three composers are doing in their music and in their careers and also the organization and how those things are in dialogue. And then also uh, like a bunch of other organizations that I was interested in following to understand basically like what this world is and where Bang and Kent's place was in it. Um, we said the word grant a whole lot. <laughs> and I think one of the threads that runs through the whole book is uh, the consequence of collapse might be too strong a word to say that what happened to government funding, but it certainly became significantly more difficult to get funding from the U.S. government, specifically the NEA. Um, and it became different, too. They reorganized the NEA in this period so that the kind of funding and the kinds of projects they were going to fund were, you know, were different. And mm -hmm. um, can you talk about why that happened and sort of the reverberations in the classical music world um, at large as well as for Bang on the Can? Yeah. Yeah, this is a... Um... A big question. Let me, I'll try to parse it in a few different ways. So, you know, the first thing to say is like composers in the United States have never fully relied on our government for funding. That is never like the United States government, except for the brief period, you know, during uh, FDR's term and, and the Works Progress Administration, where like there were actually artists being paid as full-time employees by the government, which is a, an amazing fluke, but a fluke. Um that composers do not, you know, unlike in Europe, you cannot kind of make your way as a state-sponsored composer. Um, but in the 19, beginning really in the 1960s and into the 1970s, there was, um, there were significant NEA composer fellowships available to composers. And more broadly, you know, part of this kind of uptown ethos was the idea that the academy and um, some major private foundations like the Ford Foundation and the Rockefeller Foundation were supporting music and specifically often, especially with the Rockefeller Foundation, supporting supporting contemporary music. And this is something that um, Michael Wee and Eduardo Herrera have both documented uh, wonderfully in their recent books, as well as other scholars. And so this allowed this kind of ethos of like, you can be fully ensconced in the academy to exist. Like you can kind of make music that is for a small audience um, because you can be supported in the system that allows, whether it's grants from the government or grants from these foundations or your academic salary. Um, the foundations start to taper off their support for contemporary music in the 1970s. And in the mid to late 1980s, there's this huge battle that part, as part of the culture wars over the direction of the National Endowment for the Arts. Um, it's being attacked by um, Republicans in Congress and evangelical Christians um, as supporting obscene art or uh, porno pornographic art um, because of uh, a series of controversies around, led by uh, Jesse Helms, Senator from North Carolina, um, around the art of Andre Serrano and um, Robert Mablethorpe. 
And they were really scapegoated. The NEA was scapegoated, um, but that was what the culture wars was, was a scapegoating government organizations in an attempt to defund them um, and attack, you know, uh, gay artists, black artists, um, Latinx artists, female artists, especially in the performance arts scene. And as a result of these battles in the late 1980s going into the 1990s, um, ultimately what happens by, you know, funding for contemporary music is under attack, although certainly they're not attacking contemporary music, they're attacking the, the, the contemporary visual arts. Um, so beginning in the early 80s with Reagan, who tries to unsuccessfully to cut the budget of the NEA significantly, but the budget of the NEA decreases through the 80s um, in terms of its real dollar value. Artists, including composers, are 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 urged to embrace the marketplace, which is a kind of vague, you know, kind of term representative of a kind of broader neoliberal ideology that can involve anything from, you know, you can't rely on government funding to you can't rely on foundation funding to you need to seek out a big audience for your work to you need to find sources of earned income rather than sources of nonprofit income. So like you need to sell a lot of tickets or you need to sell a lot of CDs. Uh, and in the 80s, there were very big, like significant models among composers for this approach. Like Philip Glass was having this huge career that, although he was getting commissions for operas in Europe or even symphonies, um, was seen as kind of like the non-academic, non-classical approach. Like he's, you know, he's selling hundreds of thousands of records. He's selling out, you know, rock, rock clubs and stuff like that. So there were these models for the academic, the non-academic marketplace career and the Bang and a Can composers um, were very influenced by that approach. They wanted to reach a larger audience. And as the funding really begins to dip, as government sources become less available, they, um, in the mid-1990s, find, kind of find these various strategies to open up new streams of income for their organization. Um, one is via touring. They start their All-Stars Ensemble in 1992, which is a way of taking the ethos of the marathon on the road, um, first around the U.S. and then internationally. Um, you know, they, they bring together these six performers to start the sextet, um, which is both a touring vehicle for Bang Can, but also at the time when the government funding dips is dipping significantly, um, they are, it's a way to unlock earned income via ticket sales. Um, and then also recording, which does not earn them a lot of money, but um, it's another way to open up a new stream of income. And, you know, this, the, the story around government funding culminates in 95, 96, when, um, Newt Gingrich comes into power with the um, mandate. Contract Sorry. for America. Yes, thank you. The Contract for America. I have baby brain. Um, and that ultimately ends up cutting the NEA's budget enormously. Um, and the NEA has to scale back and restructure. And the people who are applying organizations, both within contemporary music, but also in classical music more broadly, that could regularly rely on having, you know, maybe... 10 to 20% of their funding from the government, suddenly they're like, it, grants are competitive every year. That's not guaranteed as a source of income anymore, which again, this is not a huge percentage of their, of their budget, but it does lead organizations to change their approaches. And more broadly, as foundations are pivoting away from contemporary music as well, that finding new sources of income is, is really important. So do you think that the pressure of having to find these other sources of income as government funding dries up and changes because of course when the nea changes their ideas that does tend to yeah. trickle down to the state sure. agencies and to foundations and stuff as they they tend to align themselves all together after a while mm -hmm. in many cases do you think that has driven 
a lot of the innovation for bang on the can mm. or do you think they would have done had made this approach no matter what what else was happening I think it has. I think, you know, I, I try, I'm certainly not interested in making the argument that like, <laughs> which certainly is an argument that gets made a lot that like, if we get rid of the government, everyone's going to be more innovative, because we're all uh, tr- scrambling to survive. And like, you know, wouldn't it be wonderful if we had some kind of horrible healthcare marketplace? Um, you know, like, that's not an argument I'm interested in advancing. But certainly, you know, the way that they frame it is like, we were scrappy, we were hungry, we were trying to survive at a time when the models were changing, and we figured out a new model for ourselves. Um, they still relied on the old model, they still, you know, they were successful when the NEA restructured in the mid 1990s, they got some pretty significant NEA grants, they had a couple of years where they were things were lean, where they lost grants that they had guaranteed. But when they came back, they've always been good at finding money in different places. But the model, I think, of diversity becomes important um, in terms of diversifying funding sources, as well as, you know, diversifying the kinds of music at the marathon, which is, you know, I tell the story in the book of older organizations in contemporary music or more old school organizations like the group for contemporary music, which had been around since the 1960s and was a really important kind of quasi academic um, ensemble for performing contemporary music. Um, They really faltered in the early 1990s because they were not both not willing to seek out non-traditional funding sources. They wanted to just kind of continue to get the money that they got, which was a reasonable thing to think in the 1960s and 70s. Um, But also there were issues interesting issues happening around diversity in terms of um, diversity of voices of composers and performers on stage. Um, So in the early 1990s, some foundations and state and federal agencies, including the New York State Council on the Arts, which is the one that I look at specifically because of the grant materials that I mentioned already, um, were beginning to ask organizations in the arts that were applying to them for funding, what kind of diversity can you can we see on your stage and in your programs in terms of um, race and gender and ethnicity? And the group for contemporary music basically balked at that. Um, they were run by a fairly conservative, uh, kind of neoconservative composer, Charles Warnin, um, who said, like, we don't we don't do affirmative action in our programming, which is really problematic framing, um, but aligns with a broader kind of conservative worldview in this period. And then you had organizations like Bang and I Can, which, you know, Bang and I Can was not like a radically pluralist organization. They were not like the AACM or anything, but they were from, from their first marathon, they had been programming women on their concerts um, and composers of color, and they continued to do so. And they got, you know, good grants for doing so. Um, So this was part of the kind of shifting climate in this period as well. That brings up a couple of questions I thought of. And one was Mm -hmm. actually about diversity. I could, um, you know, you make clear in the book that they were uh, always um, committed at least to gender diversity. I mean, Julia Wolf is a woman, right? So sure. that gives yeah. you they, in there that trifecta running bang on the can. You already have a woman composer, which is still unusual in the world mm-hmm. of classical music. Maybe not unusual, but difficult, a, a different kind of road. Yeah. I'm sorry, what? I just said it was, it's significant. It's significant. Yeah. Yes. That is the word I want. Thank you. But I wondered about the audience because when sure. you just, you quoted Julia Wolf about, um, the uh, their like ideal audience member who sounded very white to me (laughs) doesn't ever say white but that's i what i read into it you know talking heads fan and you know that kind of thing um do what kind of outreach do they do if any to sort of um diversify the audience Mm -hmm. for contemporary music as well as diversifying the perspectives of the composers yeah so i think in the 80s and 90s 
that was not necessarily the main concern, which is to say that I think this idea of like, you know, to a certain degree, and this is what Glass and Reich were doing in this period as well, is like, let's find the younger potential classical music audience. Not that they are not that Bang in the Can is thinking like we need to get people in the seats of the New York Philharmonic eventually, but like basically like let's think of your classical music audience as kind of like old, white, and somewhat wealthy. Let's let's get the younger kind of the um the yuppies or what 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 David Brooks called like the bobos or whatever. Um that was, I think, kind of how they conceptualize, you know, people and people who are artsy hanging out in New York, but we're not interested in contemporary music. And yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, there, it's not explicit, but that is a, I think a racialized uh, category and certainly it's a class category. Right. Um, and that's not something I kind of get into detail in my book. I, I was a little bit more interested in like less the, the specifics of who they've got and more the idea of trying to get them and like what that meant. Um, but there is Lincoln center does do this audience survey in um, the, I think 1996, um, they do an audience survey um, at, at one of their Lincoln Center concerts. And I had that, that data, which was, you know, they surveyed like 300 people or something. And, you know, they, they, they didn't ask about race, but they asked about education and, you know, almost everyone had a bachelor's degree. If not, I mean, a lot of people had masters or PhDs. Um, and so again, like, I'm not going to, I can't make conclusions about the racial makeup of your audience. I don't think I know enough about what's going on there and I don't have enough data, um, but it wouldn't, I think, I think it was largely white audiences in the last probably 10 or so years, they've done a number of um, kind of social engagement and outreach projects. They have this organization bounce out nation. That's part of the larger umbrella organization that's involved in more kind of like um, uh, educational outreach projects. They did have um there were a couple of random kind of interesting little things that happened in the early nineties that I didn't go into in detail in my book, but one was um, I think they got a grant to do this um, shadow puppet opera by a Chinese composer whose name I think is Boon Ching Lam, although I'd have to double check that. And it was, I think specifically for a Chinese audience. And so like they advertised in um, like uh, ethnic newspapers in New York and like it was, it was, so there's some interesting little one-off things, but um, yeah, I mean, that's not, that's an important, point um and one that i like just didn't have enough it's like a combination of like wasn't the main interest of my book and then also not really being able to have enough data about the audience to be able to make kind of strong conclusions about it Um, but yes i think you're right yeah well and of course you were focusing on the 80s and 90s and i i mean i i remember the 80s and 90s very well and that was really not (laughs) I mean, there was a lot of talk about the audience dying, as there always yeah. is for classical music, but mm-hmm. I don't recall much in the way of talking about racial diversity. It yeah. was really more about a young audience. Everyone mm-hmm. was concerned that their audience was dying, <laughs> so yeah. which is a perpetual concern. Apparently, mm-hmm. the audience is always dying, but um, uh, yeah, I certainly the age thing was a, was a big. Yeah, I mean, I will say, like, this goes to the to the issues of diversity um, with the grant applications I mentioned earlier in terms of um, composers represented of, of different um, underrepresented groups, which is like, when I talked to people about that, no one remembered anything about that. But then there was this, there, there clearly were these conversations happening around it that people didn't remember. And I think that there's often this, you know, issues of diversity crop up every few years and then people forget that they happened and things simmer down. And, and I did find some really interesting conversations around audience diversity in terms of race and and ethnicity happening in the classical world in this period, uh, because there were these fights among organizations in New York receiving funding 
from the federal government or the state government for outreach programs. And um, for example, like the New York Philharmonic or the Museum of Modern Art would be getting um, uh, major grants to do outreach programs to minority communities in the city. And there were minority-led organizations, smaller organizations that felt that they were their budgets were much smaller. Their organizations were being threatened, and 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 now these giant organizations are that are run by white people are being awarded to go basically steal their audience from them, um, which was interesting. It that that I couldn't find any clear connections to contemporary music, but there were these series of congressional hearings in the eighties, um, uh, led by the um, New York Black and Puerto Rican Legislative Caucus, um, which I guess were federal or state. I can't quite remember. Um, and I read the report. It's called Cult- "Towards Cultural Democracy" about you know these debates around multiculturalism, around audience diversity um, that you know, again, we're a little bit tangential to what I was interested in, but they come up in various points. And it's, it's a really fascinating moment that um, I haven't seen much scholarship on that would be interested to see more. On. So what are, do you think um, is the, what are the pros and cons of having an organization that is so organized around just three people, right? And what they want and what they like. And I mean, they, it does, your description of it is not a democracy, a bang on the can, right? They mm-hmm. run bang on the can and sure. um, they don't seem to have like a, a board that they depend upon a lot. They don't seem very they open. Have, they do have a board now. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, okay. I mean, you mm-hmm. certainly do paint a picture of mm-hmm. them being, you know, really interested in making sure that their vision mm-hmm. is what Bang on the Can is, is about. You know, they program the concerts, that kind of stuff. So what are the pros and cons of that? Yeah, that's a, that's a you know, this was a kind of underlying theme that was like the, to me, kind of some of the, the ideal themes or frameworks that I have in my book are ones that come across through research as I gradually realize that this is a significant thing that is not part of the conversation around Bang on a Can. And one of those was this idea of governance in terms of how the organization is run and basically democracy, which is um, what does it mean to have a kind of de- democratic organization? And, you know, the the Bang on a Can is often described as a composer's collective, which is not, not true, but, and it, they don't often describe themselves that way, but that's often the shorthand. I mean, I even sometimes describe them as a composer's collective. Um, and it's a composer collective in the sense that there are three composers who collaborate very deeply and who are very have been very close since the 1980s. Two of them are married to each other, Gordon and Wolf. Um, and that their vision informs the organization. But it's not a collective in the sense of everyone who participates in the organization has equal say. They like to think of themselves, and I think they are a collaborative organization in the sense that they all work together to make decisions, not just among the three of them, but also they have a staff now in the in the 2010s or the 2020s, um, and they have an ensemble, the All-Stars, and it's cooperative. But ultimately, the final decisions reside with Gordon Lang and Wolf, which makes sense because it's the organization they started in the 1980s, and they've been the artistic directors and founders, and they think of themselves that way. And when they started, I think part of the power of the organization was that it was these three new voices on the scene that were coming up with really inventive ways of doing things in terms of their programming and their artistic mission and and their larger philosophy. And when you read reviews of their concerts and let's say the Village Voice, there's a freshness that they talk about of like, there had been these 
traveling new music festivals called New Music America for about a decade before Bang on Account started. And uh, there's a critic, Kyle Gann, writing for The Voice. And he kind of describes in this period, like New Music America had become this kind of like overbloated bureaucratic thing where it would touch down in a city and every composer in the city would be submitting a piece. And, you know, you'd have 10 different city organizations, concert halls, state funders, uh, the mayor's office, all involved in planning these concerts. And it, would, it just felt like too many cooks in the kitchen. And the, the musical experience felt kind of like unwieldy and like too many, too bureaucratic. And, you know, he describes Bang in a Can as like this fresh young upstart where it's like, you have three composers. They have a kind of very specific artistic perspective that's eclectic, but it's like everything's filtered through their curatorial view. And that makes it fresh. Um, by the mid to late 1990s, Kyle Gann is then saying in the voice like, oh, it's become stale because it's the three same composers curating again and again and again. And I don't, when I look at the marathon programming and I, I did a kind of deep dive into what's being programmed in each festival, I didn't, that always didn't, didn't necessarily hold up to me as an argument. Like they're always kind of finding younger composers and new voices and bringing them in just this eclectic format. Um, but it is the case that because this was the decision that they chose to be an organization run by three people rather than say, you know, they do these blind tape submissions. Anyone can submit tapes, uh, in the 1990s and and have their works considered, but they're ultimately selected by the same three people every year. It's not some kind of like rotating committee of people who decide what's on a Bang in a Can festival. And that's still the case, even though it's collaborative um, when it comes time to programming a Bang in a Can festival, the ultimate curatorial authority resides with the three artistic directors. Um, so it's a specific vision um, and it's not necessarily, it's a collaborative one, but it's not necessarily a communal one or a democratic one. And so for some people, you know, if you've been attending Bang & Can festivals for the last 20 years, you have some sense of like what to expect aesthetically or curatorial. Although I, I still enjoy it and there's always usually something unexpected too. Um, but that's one downside. And then the other downside, which is a broader one that I think is important, is like in the 1960s and 70s, there, there was this intensive period of, you know, I mean, this is the world is changing. The counterculture is emerging. This intense period of social change, which of course you know about in your research. Um, and, you know, there was, a, there was a sense that in certain contemporary music worlds and ensembles, like there was a collectivist approach of like, we can all be leaders. We can all make this music together. And our groups, again, this is not all groups, but some groups can model this idea of democracy as like what we do as an ensemble can model a kind of social relations that we want to see in the world. Um, and this was actually specifically the democratic and kind of socialist model of sheep's clothing, which was the precursor for Bang on a Can. Bang on a Can picks up on their marathon approach, but does not pick up on this idea of like every person in the group is an equal liberated member. And we are modeling this communal ethos, which is very much inspired by, um, you know, John Cage, um, Christian Wolf, um, Cornelius Cardew, who, you know, has this kind of manifesto in the 70s and his scratch, the scratch orchestra that he runs in England, of, which is very much like almost Maoist approach to um, making music. And that was not what Bang & Can did. And this can be most clearly seen with the relationship with the All-Stars Ensemble in the 1990s, where you have three composers who are the artistic directors of the ensemble, but they don't play in the ensemble. There's just, the ensemble is a sextet of virtuosic performers who are fantastic musicians um, and who have can contribute uh, certainly in terms of their performance style technique and, and what they bring to those performances. And they made suggestions for repertoire, but the three artistic directors were ultimately in charge of the repertoire and kind of touring. And there were some tensions that emerged in the nineties as a result of that, um, that signal, like this is not, this is something that's not a democracy, um, whatever you call it, um, 
which again, like it worked really for the large part, it worked well for them, except for some tensions with the ensemble and it's continued to work well with them as, as the model has shifted a bit. Um, but I was interested in, in pointing this out in the book and saying like, look, this is one way to do things. We used to see a different way of doing things in this period that um, some groups continue to do, but other groups don't. And like, we should, I think, be reflective about what this model means and what it might say about the world of new music, that the way to succeed in this particular world, or this one way to succeed was not a democratic mode of, of thought. Do you think Bang on the Can could withstand the three of them not being involved? Hmm. I mean, that seems to me, one. if you're looking for an institution that is going to last yeah. and last, you, at some point, the founders have to leave for one reason or another. Yeah. What do you think? Do you think Bang on the Can is one mm-hmm. that could withstand that? I mean, it's it's a it's a really interesting question. Yeah, I, it, it was one that I started to think about at the very end of my research process, and I asked David Lang about it. So I can't speak to all three composers, but I can at least speak to his view. And he said... You know, he kind of said, like, I don't really, Bang on a Can exists to serve, like, Bang on a Can exists ultimately like it did in the early, the mid 80s, where I want to, I want to go hear music that I want to go hear. And this is like the vehicle to do it. Like, I want to, I, we, we want to program concerts of music we really want to go hear, which is a, to me, that's like a really pure and exciting way to think about it. But then he was also kind of said, like, I don't really know what's going to happen after, but like, I don't really see why this or like, when, when we're not here to hear the concerts, why should the organization exist? Which he was saying in a philosophical way, because then he went on to say like, but like we have full-time employees who like rely on us for their salaries and health insurance. So it's like a complicated question. Um, you know, what Bang on a Can does now is so much more than just what the three composers do, um, as opposed to 20 years ago, where it was much more about kind of them. And, you know, the organization will always support those three composers, but when you go to a Bang on a Can concert, you mostly hear other composers, whether those are younger composers or old, older composers or young composers. And so in that sense, like I hope that Bang on a Can continues in a way and becomes this thing, but it's also, it is so tied to these three composers. And it's it's a weird model too, because the Philip Glass Ensemble certainly relies on Philip Glass to be a part of it. I mean, he he typically plays within the ensemble. I'm not sure if he does anymore, but and it's not like he's like the music director of the ensemble. He's not. And there have been changes in the management of the ensemble in the last few years, which which indicate that they are finding, I think, a way to build a legacy for that group after Glass is gone, which hopefully won't be for a while. But And Glass is also a popular enough composer that I do think that if Glass passed away, the Philip Glass ensemble could probably still tour without him. I'm saying that because that would be sad. Um, but Bang on a Can is not the Michael Gordon, David Lang, and Julia Wolf ensemble. That's not what it's called. And so there's this question of, is Bang on a Can the name, those three composers? Or is it this organization that supports all kinds of things that includes those three composers? And it's always kind of a, an and. It's always been both of those things. But that does, one of the tensions in the 1990s with the between the All-Stars and the directors was that the composers were asking like, what is this group? Sorry, the performers were asking like, what is this group? Is it the group for us to be able to play the music that we think is important for us to champion? Or is it for us to play your music and music by Brian Eno as part of this big music rare parts tour they were doing? And um, yeah, I mean, these are, I, I don't know the answers to a lot of these questions. And also, you know, I was so embedded in the innards of the organization really up until the year like 2000, 2002, that I don't know as much about the innards of the organization today um, and, and what they're thinking about five or 10 years from now. 
So there was one other thread that I wanted to talk about a little bit before this mm -hmm. interview ends, and that is the issues of recording and the changes in the recording industry in the 90s. You talk about this moment or two moments when they seem to have this, um, they move into the big time sort of, you know, first it was yeah. playing at Lincoln Center and then it was doing a, a recording mm -hmm. for Sony. And we've sort of talked about the the funding aspect of all of sure. that, but I'd love to talk a little bit about what was going on with the recording industry and how that was affecting contemporary music as well. Because that seems like, although it wasn't necessarily much money for them, as you say, recording, yeah. especially today, but even then may not have been, it's not, not possibly be a huge moneymaker. Um, it is a way of getting your music out to people and, yeah. and popularizing it and letting people know what, you know, contemporary composers are doing. For sure. So, you know, when I, when I talk about my book, we, we usually spend most of these conversations, which I love talking about Bang on a Can, but like, I would say Bang on a Can is probably 60% of the book. And then the other 40% is actually other stuff that's happening around Bang on a Can. And the record industry chapter is kind of indicative of this in that, like, there are huge seismic shifts happening in the record industry in the 1980s and 90s around that relate to contemporary music. And Bang on a Can has a, has a significant, but ultimately kind of minor part a revealing part in it that that it's pivotal for Bang on a Can, if not kind of for the larger recording ecosystem. And so you have in the transition into the 1990s, uh, a couple major things happening in the record industry. One is that it's becoming the CD industry. And so the classical music world realizes that they can make a lot of money by reissuing all of their records on CD. And they do that and they make a ton of money. And then they say, now that we've released all these CDs of our former collection, let's also just like release as many CDs as we can of like Beethoven cycles by, you know, Claudio Abbado or whatever. And uh, by 1992, 1993, this strategy does not work because suddenly CDs, CD stores, Tower Records is like flooded with all these reissues. And everyone has now rebought their old catalog. And how many Beethoven cycles can you have? And so classical sales begin to dip and record companies are looking for a new path forward? What is the way to rejuvenate our classical sales? And this is happening amidst another related and overlapping important development in the corporate infrastructure of the record industry, which um, Dale Chapman has written about in his great book, um, The Jazz Bubble, which is that um, the economic model is changing within these mega corporations. And they've now become, by the 80s and 90s, mega corporations. Like you have conglomerates like Sony, which has movie holdings and film and TV holdings and electronics and classical music and popular music. And in the past, popular music had subsidized classical music. All the, you know, the basically the extra money that that goes to popular helps subsidize the fact that classical doesn't sell as well in the record in most of the major record companies. Um, but they are trying, I mean, this is the new kind of age of neoliberalism. It's after the early 90s economic slump. Um, there's a new kind of focus on shareholder value and these large corporations want every every aspect of their bottom line to be profitable basically like you can't have one bottom line subsidize another the classical division needs to be treated like the pop division it needs to run at a profit and so you have they're seeking out profits and they've run out of a way to do so because they've sold all these classical cities and so you have this is the time in which crossover arrives as the major source of classical sales so the three tenors right like 
let's or let's put um a violinist on the cover of an album and we'll have her like half naked um and we'll we'll come up with these ways to sell classical music like pop whether it's you know famous opera singers singing pop songs or whether it's pop singers singing classical music or some kind of you know cheesy collaboration between the two or make it sexy or have um the london philharmonic play led zeppelin um and this is going to be the way to boost sales related to this is that through the 1980s some contemporary music had been selling really well philip glass's records were selling really well in the late 1970s and early 1980s steve reich's music for 18 musicians sells 100,000 copies um C- glass signs a contract with cbs in the early 1980s which becomes sony which was the first time a living composer had signed a, a contract with cbs since stravinsky and copeland and um you know they put out glass works this kind of like walkman cassette which sells you know, hundreds of thousands of copies and they put out crossover things like song from liquid days which was this glass composition where you have uh, suzanne vega singing lyrics by paul simon written by philip glass the other thing that sells really well in the 80s and especially in the early 90s is what becomes known as spiritual or holy minimalism, which is music by composers like Arvo Pert and John Tavener and Henrik Goretzky, which were related to the American minimalists aesthetically, but kind of had this more kind of religious overtones. The The albums were being marketed by labels like ECM and Virgin as like these like exotic Eastern European composers bringing, you know, these stories of sorrow and and some kind of like opaque abstract spirituality which related to kind of like new age you know 90s chic stuff and in 1992 none such records um goretzky's third symphony which is this um 55 minute um slow and very beautiful um kind of meditation that's kind of about the holocaust um and it becomes this huge smash success um with uh, Don Upshaw singing in the Orchestra of St. Luke's, ultimately sells more than a rec- million records by the mid 1990s. Um, it was at one point in like 93, it was selling 10,000 copies a day. And so after Glass and Reich had been successful selling albums, and then especially after the what I call the Goretzky moment, basically every major label is like, who's our Goretzky? Goretzky's already with Nunsuch, Arvo Peart's already with Arvo with um ecm so everyone's just scrambling to find like what's the contemporary music that's going to sell a million records and nothing ever sells like goretzky does but um sony which is already doing all this crossover stuff and which um peter gelb infamous for being the general manager today of the metropolitan opera took he took over sony classical in the mid 90s and kind of turned it around by focusing on crossover he and his staff recruit bang in a can as and there's a um actually a British um, producer um, who I interviewed um, who was the one who kind of found Bang on a Can and thought like this would work really well. And there there were plans to do a kind of contemporary music imprint and that included releasing two Bang on a Can albums. Um, and so they get ushered into the kind of classical mainstream of the recording world via this larger, these bigger shifts around the Goretzky moment in the mid 1990s. Um, their first album, Industry, after which my book is named is 95 and the second album in 96 or seven. And the albums don't sell super well. Um, they sell fine, um, but they were not the smash hit that that um, Gelb wanted. And and Sony also didn't really know what to do with them. This was the problem: is there are all these labels are trying to like gobble up these contemporary music projects and try to turn them into some kind of rock thing or Philip Glass thing. And and Bang Out Again was well poised to capitalize on this moment. Like they had all this kind of marketing savvy, but I think they kind of fell through the cracks. That um, they. They told me like they they kept trying to get Gelb to come to one of their concerts and he didn't come. So like they just didn't know what to do with them. Um, but it is represented this moment and Bang on a Can's 
the kind of their most significant recording in in 98 or so is um, music for airports, which is related to this phenomenon too. They start working with a different one of these contemporary music imprints, Point Music, which was on Phillips um, and was curated by Philip Glass and a couple of his associates. And for that, they record, um, uh, they they arrange a, an acoustic version of Brian Eno's Music for Airports, this famous ambient album. And that sells pretty well. It doesn't sell amazingly, but it, it also represents, it's kind of uh, an artsier version of crossover. Um, and it's part of this broader kind of pattern of events in the 1990s around what's happening in the recording industry. And ultimately what they realize, which is kind of what they had been doing from the start in their own world is like, it's not viable to work with these huge companies that are essentially expecting you to sell a hundred thousand records. And so they end up starting their own record label in Cantaloupe uh, called Cantaloupe in 2001. Um, and that's become a, a huge kind of significant house for their music as well as the music of, of their larger artistic world. I wonder if you could talk for a moment about what you see as bang on the cans um, importance as a model for how contemporary music works now. Um, you mentioned that in the book as well. You know, you've you've you really focus on those first twenty years, and it it seems to me that one reason is because what they're doing is sort of what everybody does now. You know, and yeah, so can yeah. you talk a little bit, you know, about that legacy for for Bang on the Can for other groups? Yeah, so in 2000, in the early 2000s, um, they start a summer institute, which is at the Massachusetts Museum of Contemporary sorry. Art. <laughs> I am really sorry about that. Oh, that's I'll okay. Start. I'll start over. Take your time. Yeah, this dog is sitting next to me looking at me like, what is that going <laughs> <laughs> Okay. I'm going to stop okay. really, oh, you know, no. okay. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll tell them to. Like I said, everything's happened to me. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. Okay, um, so in the early 2000s, they start a summer institute for young composers and performers at the Massachusetts Museum of Contemporary Art, which is in the Berkshires. It's called Banglewood because uh, it's like an hour from Tanglewood. And, you know, in the early years of that, a lot of composers and performers went through who have subsequently had, had major careers. And, you know, it's not I don't necessarily see the summer institute as like if you go to the summer institute, you're going to become a famous composer or anything like that's never how contemporary music really works. But it does, you know, I think, encourage and support a model that emphasizes Bang & Can's values, um, which when they talk about it, it's not like they want to teach everyone to write music like they do. They want everyone to have this kind of open-minded worldview. And they also talk about like, how do you build your own ensemble and how do you build your own record label and how do you create a career, for a, a path for yourself as a musician? Um, that's important to the festival too. And, you know, it is, they are such a strong model, both in terms of the influence of the summer festival, but just more broadly, like, oh, they're actively touring and when people go see you know composers are always like when i was in college it's like an inspiring thing to see them play but they they are just up there in terms of representing what it means to be a composer in the united states in this period what it means to kind of carve out a path for yourself especially in the last 10 years the careers that lang gordon wolf have had individually as well as with bang and a can um and you know they're a little bit more there are composers who I think are more aesthetically influential on American new music, like John Adams or Philip Glass or Steve Reich. Um, but those composers are not, you know, Lang, Gordon, and Wolf all teach at universities, Lang and, and Wolf full time, um, and they teach at the academy, and, and they are just not, they, so they are not just influential in terms of people liking and wanting to write music like them. They are kind of advancing their worldview in, in, in the broader kind of pedagogical sense. And 
Um, you know, I've, I've also found them to be very, you know, and talking to their students to be very open-minded people who want, they don't want everyone to go out and be clones of them. They want people to go out and have a kind of open, like to do their own thing and to support themselves. And they also don't see the organization as like, we're going to prop up everyone else in the world of contemporary music. They want to see people kind of succeed on their own in a way too. Um, um, which is a worldview. It's an ideology. Um, still, uh, it's, you know, probably better off than like write music exactly like I do, but it is still, you know, this kind of broader influence on, on the larger U S scene and, and an international scene too. Well, this was a wonderful book and I really enjoyed reading it, but perhaps Thank we you can... so much. Well, I did. It was, it was such a, it's a very entertaining read. It goes fast. Those my favorite kind of books where you're not stopping and having to look up what some complicated word means and things. So I, I was, it I was, I definitely enjoyed reading it. Um, but let's turn to what are you doing now that the book is out? What's your next project? Yes. Uh, raising a child is number one. Uh, my son is 15 months and that is, uh, how I spend most of my energy and that's wonderful. And I love doing that. And then the other thing is working on this other book, um, which is called Minimalist Music, a Reader. And it's a collaboration with my friend, uh, the musicologist, Carrie O'Brien, who's based in Seattle. And we've been working on this for a couple of years now. Um, and it's basically uh, a revisionist history of musical minimalism from the 50s through the present, through the lens of reprinting and contextualizing important primary sources. Um, so minimalist music is often... Uh, associated historically with these four kind of founding father composers, Lamont Young, uh, Terry Riley, Philip Glass, and Steve Reich. And a lot of the academic literature on minimalism has focused on those four composers. And they're really important, but they're also all white guys. And the story of minimalism is broader than them. Um, and it's also just goes in a lot more directions than um, people might often think. So where the book brings together... Uh, over a hundred different documents um, that include things like manifestos, liner notes, interviews, important reception, like reviews, um, profiles, that kind of thing. Um, together, the book's kind of organized chronologically. So we move, there's like a big first section on the 50s and 60s, then the, the 70s and 80s, and then the kind of post-2000. Um, and each each chapter is introduces a different theme related to minimalism. So um you know, some of the early chapters are things like experimental music or improvisation or um, uh, spirituality. Um, and, and we follow both the, the kind of big four minimalists through their careers, but we also introduce a lot of figures who are important to those seat worlds. Um, people like Yoshi Wada, who's a really fascinating figure um, in downtown New York in this period, or um, uh, Meredith Monk, or... Um, Ellen Fullman or Julius Eastman. Um, and then we, we're trying to expand this understanding of minimalism beyond, you know, kind of contemporary classical music or art music to think about, okay, John Coltrane is a huge, John and Alice Coltrane were both hugely important minimalists. Yoko Ono was a hugely important minimalist. Um, a lot of rock bands in the 1970s and 80s were doing minimalism. A lot of um, experimental musicians today who are not part of the classical music world are doing minimalist stuff too. Um, so it's really, we're trying to expand our, the understanding of what minimalism has been drawing on a lot of recent scholarly ideas that expand this notion and just like present a different history of it through documents. So it's been really fun because it's a different, um, the last book was so much just like me reading and writing, and this is a collaboration and it's also we're contextualizing stuff. Um, and, uh, we have spent, 
uh, I don't know, dozens of hours securing permissions for things, which is basically the 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 main meat of the work on the book. But it's been going well, and we've got almost everything checked off, and uh, it's with the University of California Press, and it's been it's been great. So we're hoping to turn in the manuscript by the end of this year um, for peer review, and we'll kind of go from there. Well, that sounds wonderful and well needed. I will definitely be using that in my teaching, no doubt. <laughs> I love you. a good reader, so that sounds yeah. wonderful. Well, thank you so much for thank you so much for joining me today. And this is Kristen Turner with New Books and Music, a channel on the New Books Network. And I've been talking to Will Robin about industry, bang on a can, and new music in the marketplace, published by Oxford University Press in 2021. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much, Kristen. I really love being here and I love the podcast.